This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. It was just a matter of time before Dave and I talked about the Achilles heel of many writers, cliches. We are going to give you an earful of why writing with cliches keeps your work from crossing into the great category and why identifying cliches in your own writing isn't easy as pie. In fact, it takes sweat, determination, and hard work to identify the cliches and replace them with fresh and engaging language. We hope you are all ears for this episode on making your writing better than ever by ditching the cliches. Dave, before we go into where we've made progress, can you identify how many cliches I used in this intro? (laughs) Oh man, this is so fun. I was listening to this and going, oh, 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 here we go. Okay, so I'm going to count them. Uh, Well, let's start with the phrase, to give you an earful. That's definitely a phrase. Then came easy as pie, and then sweat, determination, and hard work. And then all ears, and also the phrase better than ever. I guess that makes five. What about just a matter of time and Achilles heel? Those might cross into the cliche category. I think so, and I think it might depend on your audience, but really Achilles heel probably does fit that for sure. And then you said, and then near the end of your intro, you also say, ditching the cliches. I don't think that's a cliche. I think that's a good phrase. You're ditching. It creates an image. Right. I was actually wondering about that when I wrote that one, if it was a cliche or if it was just a strong verb. Wow. So I think maybe we have six or seven cliches (laughs) in here. That's right. That's right. (laughs) It goes to show how hard it is to write without cliches. Right. The ironic thing is that I went to write this episode intro and I had a hard time coming up with cliches, so I was looking at a list that said the most comprehensive list of cliches, and I started to use them based on ones that I pulled out of there. (laughs) (laughs) That's not to say I wouldn't use cliches. I'm sure I've used plenty of cliches in my intros up to this point. I just wanted to pack them in, so. (laughs) Well, we should pivot. Pivot? Is that a cliche? Oh, that's a horrible cliche. Well, I'm going to pivot and talk about my progress this week. <laughs> All right. Pivot, pivot, pivot. Do you, did you watch the Friends reunion? Oh, I did. And I that, did watch the Friends. That was great. Yeah, and that that whole scene of trying to get the the sofa up the stairs. Pivot, oh, pivot, so pivot. hilarious. <laughs> I love that. I, I was surprised, by the way, how poorly the men looked. I thought. I with, think they had plastic surgery, too. Absolutely. And they looked weird. I thought Ross looked the best. Okay. Don't you think? I thought Joey did. He put on some weight, but he looked the most natural in his face. I thought Ross's face looked kind of like he had done some Botox or something. And Chandler, I was like, what happened to him? What happened to him? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I thought the girls looked fabulous. Although Monica was a little little strange you could tell she had some work done yeah and i thought phoebe looked the best right she looked the most natural like she'd embraced her age yeah totally yeah 
listen to us. I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good thing we're behind. Been... <laughs> good thing we're not in front of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> or we're not exactly. in front of the camera. We're we're behind it. We're just in front of the microphones. <laughs> That's how we do podcasts and That's not right. video casts. That's right. <laughs> okay, so progress. So for me, so I have four kids. Um our older three are out of the house. I have one who lives in Christian who's twenty five who lives in Minneapolis and then my daughter Kira lived in Nashville. She's a nurse and then came back home for like four weeks and now she's up in in the UP for three or four months while she works as a health officer at a camp, and then she'll come back. But our our uh, third child is 20, and he's living with us for the first half of the summer until he goes out west for a for a class. And I tell you what, having adult kids back in the house is so hard. Yes. So my progress is doing a better job of keeping my mouth shut. That is so hard to do, Dave. So when the dishes pile up, I mean, I'm thinking. My daughter has lived on her own, but there's no anxiety about letting things pile up. It, all we're asking is that you just put stuff in the dishwasher after you, after you use the dishes, right? The thing is, is that the dishwasher often has to be unloaded, and nobody True. wants to do the unloading of the dishwasher. So they just pile up their dishes thinking, somebody will unload the dishwasher, and then I can put my plate in. And then it just gets to be such a huge mess, nobody does it. You are dead on. That is exactly right. Nobody wants to do it. And we, Jen and I, get a little passive aggressive. We're like, we'll just let it pile up. And it piles up. Yep. So my progress is realizing that no matter what I say, there's no change that's going to happen. Right. They're going to have to have their own kids in their house, not doing dishes to understand how annoying it is. Yep. So, so, (laughs) So instead of berating them or pinging them, I'm just not doing that anymore and just... Realizing it's never going to get done, I'll have to do it myself, or Jana will have to do it. Often Jana does it. Anyway, so I'm keeping my mouth shut. That's huge progress. That is progress. So my progress is attached to last week's progress. When I said that we spent a lot of time cleaning up our yard, and we have in the past done a terrible job of doing spring cleanup, and this year we have time. The weather hasn't been rainy on the weekends, which I'm realizing is a large part why we let it go in the past is every weekend was rainy and then it just got to be too late in the season but it, it's been a really nice spring hardly any rain so we got our yard cleaned up and now I'm obsessed with planting flowers because I love to make bouquets that's one of my very favorite pastimes aside from going antiquing and flea marketing I love to make bouquets and I'm so sick of spending money on flowers at the supermarket and flower stores that I decided I'm going to grow my own flowers this summer so I can at least this summer make my own bouquets. So I've been planting a lot of flowers and nurturing them, watering them, trying to figure out if they're in the right spot. So we'll see how this goes. But it's progress for me because I'm actually thinking about gardening, where, whereas in the past I just didn't even put any effort in at all. So how long do flowers take? Like if you plant flowers now, will you have flowers by middle of July? Probably July. Yeah, middle of July, late July. Some will start to come up early July. I know by 4th of July, you start to get some of those kind of prairie flowers, like the cone flowers and some of the daisies and, um, but black-eyed Susans. But I'm, I'm, I planted cosmos and zinnias and dahlias, which are all great for bouquets. And that, those will probably take a little bit more time. So it'll be a short-lived season, but at least for, you know, two months, I'll have my own flowers. That's to awesome. Yes, I'm excited. That's really, that's progress. That is that progress. Is, that's progress. <laughs> we can celebrate the small things. So today, cliches, back to cliches. We're going to talk about what a cliche is, how you can identify them in your own writing, 
why even care about cliches in your writing and just some tips for getting past them when you are writing. So let's start out with identifying what a cliche is, Dave. Okay, so a cliche, if we're going to put a, a definition to it, and you can just simply <laughs> Google the definition, but it's a phrase or an opinion that is overused, and it really shows or reveals a lack of original thought or thinking. Right, and I think when we speak, we fall into cliches pretty easily, and so and we're not saying cliches are bad to use in, in, in speaking especially because it's different, but with writing, you want your language to stand out and be memorable, and as soon as you use something that's overused and something that lacks original thought, then why are you even bothering to put something out into the world? So we really are talking about writing today and writing with cliches. So what are some cliches? I wrote down a few, as, whole, as old as the hills, terrified to death, my heart was pounding, a waste of time, nerves of steel, a bad egg. Can you add any to the list or do you want to add so any? So we have our road trippers and one of the writers so graciously um, allowed us to do some of the reading uh, of her work. And, and we identified that she had a cliche that her knuckles were white. My, and that would be a cliche. Yeah. Um, you know, you've heard of the phrase white knuckling or that your knuckles are white. Well, because that, you clench your fists and it takes the blood out of your knuckles. Of right? the very tip of your knuckles. Yeah. yeah, the very top. So that, that would be a cliche. And I was so glad that she allowed us to, to do that. It was great. And what was the problem with that imagery in your, in your mind in that moment? Well, in that moment, she was in a moment of deep grief. And so she would not have been looking at her knuckles, right? Um, very likely she would have not been looking at the tips of her knuckles. And saying, man, my knuckles are white. I'm yeah. really in a bad state right now. That might be something you would observe of someone else. Right. That's a good point, Dave. But it wouldn't be something that you observe of yourself. Right, right, right. So not only was it cliche, it was something that you would never observe of yourself while you're, go while you're in a moment of deep grief. Right, right. So it just wasn't true. So which, the essence of what she wanted to express was how deeply she was grieving to the point that her body was responding in a real visceral way, right? Yeah. And so we urged her to really fight for a better way to describe that. That's right. And I think in her next draft, she'll do that. Absolutely, absolutely. So I have a funny story about cliches. My son is um, in college, and he took a literature prerequisite cl class, which happens to be poetry, and he had to do a lot of writing for this class. Every week he had to write a response paper, and so he turned in um, his cumulative assignment, and he got responses back from his professor, and he wrote this. My son wrote this. T.S. Eliot defined the 20th century through the use of dark imagery. And his professor wrote back, this seems a little bit glib, a little bit cliche. It obscures the subtleties of tone and attunement to context, which helps us detect the deeper meaning. So I, I thought it was interesting that she was picking up on cliches in his writing. And it's very true, dark imagery. That's very cliche. It's not very nuanced. It's not very specific. So I... I guess I say that because when I was in college, I don't think my professors were picking this up. They weren't calling me out on cliches. I feel like that that's something that we get by with a lot in college and even in our early years of writing. And we certainly get by with it in business. In every industry, if you are a professional, you have a whole industry of cliches. And, it's, and, it, and you need to begin to, in a sense, maybe a takeaway right up front is to start to catalog them. 
Right. Absolutely. And just by listening to this podcast, I think it's going to raise your awareness in your environments and what you're reading and your engagement, even in newsletters that maybe you're writing, you know, for PTA or whatever, you're going to, you're going to become more aware of the cliches and the overuse of cliches in our culture in general, social media too, right? Oh, for sure. I was just thinking that the, the phrase, the use of dark imagery that the professor said was a cliche, yeah. how context specific cliches are. That wouldn't be a cliche in, say, some some other some other right. genre. Right, right. But specifically, literary criticism and talking about T.S. Eliot and his work in the 20th century and his use of imagery to say he used dark imagery in that context is a cliche. Absolutely. So, yes, that is a great takeaway. Cliches are category, discipline, genre specific. Yes, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. And so, and all of us live within a context. Yeah. And so this idea that we're talking about, which is identifying what they are, maybe keeping on a list as you start to write, especially if you're a professional and you're writing, like, say, let's say a book on leadership. Oh my God, you've got a big task in front of you to write a book on leadership that doesn't use any of the leadership cliches. That's a big task. It is a big task, and it will slow you down. <laughs> and it will slow you down, right? And that's okay because language matters. That's one of our, our top our core values. Beliefs, yeah. Our core beliefs, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the problem with cliches. We talked a little bit about this already, but what are you? what do you think are some of the biggest problems with cliches? One issue with cliches is that the moment you use a cliché, you're saying something that people will tend to ignore because they think they know what you mean. Right. For starters. Right. So using the word pivot even, you know, that that is just that's a cliche, right? The word itself is a cliche. And so using it in your writing, again, you might use it in speaking. And I think we you've mentioned this just briefly, but I do think we should elucidate a bit that in speaking, sometimes cliches probably are more, what's the word, acceptable? acceptable yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you're telling stories, and you might use a cliche here and there. In writing, they're absolutely not acceptable. If you want to communicate clearly and in a way that's fresh and engaging. So I would say the first reason, basically, is that um, you're making assumptions about that the reader understands what you're saying, and you're not being specific in your language. The other thing that using cliches does is it robs your writing of um, emotion and connecting, I think, on a more emotional level, and it often relies on telling rather than showing. My sister is part of this um, grief writing course. She lost her son um, last November, and so she signed up for this grief writing course, and each day they're given prompts to help them just write about what they're experiencing in their grief, and one day she wrote about just how long nights are when you're grieving a loss. And instead of saying it was a night I thought would never end, she wrote this really beautiful sentence. She said, Dear Samuel, I'm missing you deeply today. Through the night, I found myself looking towards my feet to await a glimpse of light, telling me I didn't have to wrestle anymore. Oh. Which that just gives me goosebumps, probably because it's my sister, but also because it it actually pulls you in emotionally and helps you feel what she's feeling. Can you just see her kind of looking at her toes like, where's the light? When is this night going to be over? Rather than saying it was such a long night of sleep, I couldn't sleep because I was thinking of you. That's such a great contrast. 
between it? it was a long night and what you just read. That is so powerful. Right. I think it is too. Like just trying to see a little bit of light on my feet as the night over. Yeah, it's really a powerful example. And it, it does con connect you more on a human level. I'm going to say this, and I'm not sure maybe I should have, I should wait to say this until later in the podcast, but the way your book sells is, 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 is when somebody reads the book and it moves them and they tell somebody else, right? That's how books get sold. Right. You can have all the clever marketing you want in the world. But if after somebody reads it or while they're reading it, if it doesn't move them enough to say, I just read this amazing book on X. If they, if they don't leave that book saying that, there's no way that book is going to sell. Right. We're talking about cliches and there's so much ap applicability. If this is a book of cliches, it's a book that's not worthy of referring because you're not moving them. I love what you said about it must uh, cliches take away from the human emotion and 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 great writing moves you towards human emotion. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that and this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but cliches are often reflective of lazy writing. I think it's reflective of people who just want to get a book out. They're not really crafting, they're not really thinking about how it is going to move their audience to action or to think a different way or whatever whatever reason it is why you're writing the book. They just want to get the book out and say, I, I wrote a book, right? And so we care about language here, and sometimes people who write books don't really care about language, and this podcast is not for you. But if you do care about language and you do care about what Dave just said about moving people, connecting with people, and getting your book referred, then you're going to slow down and you're not going to be lazy about your writing. And cliches are just, they're just lazy. They're a reflection of lazy writing. We all feel insecure about our writing. But I want just to say that you can, no matter what level of writer you are, you can write without cliches. You just can. Right, you can. It takes some work. Yes, it takes work. But you are able to write without cliches. But you have to care about it, right? It has to matter to you. Right, right. It has to matter, and, and you have to come to grips with that on your on your own. It is it worth it spending the extra time to to figure out what the cliches are and to rewrite and really grapple with how can I describe this in a fresh way? Absolutely, you have to care. Not only are cliches a form of laziness, I also think I'm going to have to be harsh here. They're a form of ignorance. Yeah. What do you mean by that, Dave? Well, I think you might not know they're a cliche, and that comes because you're not doing enough reading. You are so right, Dave. Tell me more about that. So we always say, if you want to write, you need to read. Mm -hmm. It's always a red flag to me when somebody says, I'm going to write a book, and they tell me they're not a reader. I'm like, ah, really? You're not a reader, and you want to write a book. Right, right. Well, that means you're going to lay down sentences that you think are fresh when, in fact, you're just pulling cliches out of your mind from the, the few books you did read. Yep. The more you read, the fewer cliches you'll tolerate because you'll start to realize there's a lot out there that's, that's, that's been said before, and you're also not ripping other people off, or at least you're giving credit. It's okay to take somebody's ideas and then give credit. Absolutely, that's okay. We all do it. Right. 
but this idea of being unreflective because you're not reading widely enough. And so you don't know that. Imagine if you laid down the sentence and used the word pivot and didn't know it was a cliche. My gosh, where have you been the last 20 years? <laughs> That's so true. I was thinking about this poetry class that my son took, and I read almost all the poems that he was assigned because I wanted to start reading more poetry. And I realized that reading poetry is so good for thinking through how to describe something that's been described a million ways in a fresh way, like love or loss or connection or um, despair. And poets come up with new ways to describe these things. So I guess maybe I would challenge you to pick up some poetry just to to begin to, to look at how you can reframe the trite and maybe the over the overly described things in life and you'll I think you'll walk away thinking yeah there are new ways to say things that have already been said before one of my favorite modern poets is Mary Oliver she just passed away a couple years ago I've mentioned her several times but you read her her poetry and one you realize how short those sentences are but how packed they are with with fresh language it's, it's just it's just amazing so I realize not all of you are going to be or have a proclivity towards reading poetry but I do think you should aspire to writing a book without the cliches yep yep so let's give them an example we've already peppered this podcast with a few examples but let's use the example a bad egg you could write in a story, he was a bad egg, but that doesn't really tell us anything specific about the character. So how would you rewrite it, Dave? <laughs> so let's say that we were writing about uh, a, a junior in high school who was a troublemaker, right? Yep. And, and, and let's just say we were writing this story or writing an, using an illustration, maybe in a leadership book. And you said, okay, your first crack at describing what was going on is he was a bad egg yeah and then you wait a little bit and realize now that's kind of a cliche so here you could probably say something like this he found subtle ways to enrage mrs stellenbosch by coughing every time she bent over to help a student that's so great i can totally visualize that totally by the way i had a kid when i was in middle (laughs) school we had a teacher who she had a baby so the last two weeks we had, we had a we had a, a a sub and she was an older lady. She had to be close to seventy. I remember one of the kids mooning the class when she had turned her back. Yeah. And she was so frail oh and so gosh. slow, and yeah. everybody laughed. And oh she was she couldn't believe. I mean, literally, he pulled his pants down oh and, mooned, and mooned the class. Yeah, he was. Finding subtle ways to... Yeah, so he was a bad egg. He was a bad egg. I'm wondering even after this sentence, you could say something, he was rotten. Just something simple. So you're not saying he was a bad egg, but you're saying... He, you're, you're kind of alluding to the, um, to the more well-known cliche, but you're saying something in a little bit fresh ways. If you want just like a short, succinct statement to wrap it up. Yeah, I think that's great. Because it gets to the effect of... Or uh, he, a bad egg is, is rotten. It's so rotten, yeah. He was rotten to the, rotten to the core might be a cliche, yeah. But just saying he was rotten, or he's his he's stunk or yeah something. Yeah, it, the, his, the basically is an alternative to bad egg. Yeah, bad egg, and I think that that's what you really have to do with cliches is 
why did the cliché become a cliché in the first place? Because it was describing something in a fresh way. The clichés start out as something original. It's just that they become overused, as we said in the opening definition. So they were used originally in a fresh way, and they were trying to describe something that had never been described before. So you can see somebody describing somebody as a bad egg, and that's actually a really... You can imagine the first time it was used, a really fresh way to yeah, say absolutely, it, right? Absolutely. So I think what you got to do when you're thinking of cliches and how could you write this differently is like, what is the essence of what this cliche is trying to say and how can I say it in a new way? So how do you know if you're actually using a cliche? Now, we've talked about the importance of just reading. And the more you read, you kind of build this almost uh, uh, invisible like a reservoir. Yeah. Oh, a reservoir. Yeah. Like that. a reservoir of words, right? Because the more you read, the more mm-hmm. you start to um, remember stuff that you read. And, and your first impulse might be to lay down that sentence. And that's okay. But the more you read. So we've already talked about that. But as you're writing, I mean, how do you, how do you know if you're using a cliche? I just want to go back to that reading thing. I think that it can be passive, like you said, just reading a lot, but you could take it one step further and you could actually actively underline phrases, passages that feel really fresh to you and then identify what what did they do there that really was effective. And I think that will help you in applying disciplines to your own writing or strategies to your own writing. Oh, that's great. When I was, back when I was in publishing for about a year, I had a group called the Quiddities Group. Yeah, I remember that. And there were four of us, and we met, we started out meeting weekly, then it went every other week, and then monthly, and then eventually we stopped. But I think we were meeting pretty regularly for six months to a year, but we just take a piece of writing. We might take um, an essay from um, Harper's Magazine or a well piece from Sports Illustrated. We'd read it and then describe why the piece works. Oh, that's so great. We should do that in Road Trippers. We should. It is so helpful for you to actually start to see really good writing. We even did, uh, we read some Chekhov. We did Somerset Mom. We did some pieces. It's really powerful. And so that's, I think what you just said was so important, like looking at great sections or sections, underlining words and phrases, you start to, to see the discipline of what it takes to actually write something fresh. I also think the flip is true. I think to identify good writing, you also have to be able to identify bad writing. And so I would challenge you to just look at a lot of the stuff that gets posted online, the fast, fast content, right, that people aren't really paying close attention to. And just start underlining maybe and even those or making note of those cliches. And I think the more that you identify lazy writing, you'll be able to say, oh, I'm doing similar things. Oh, yeah, I should try avoiding that. So it just become. so it's really about being a conscious reader of bad writing and good writing. Oh, that's good. I think another thing is, and this gets into more of the practical, I think it's okay to lay down a, a, a cliche in your first draft. Yep, absolutely. I think We've always talked about this importance of just getting stuff out. Don't try to craft it. Just get it out. And I think it was Anne Lamott that talked about that. And she talked about her SFD, and we know what that stands for. But And, and so there is a huge momentum piece here where you need to get ideas out onto that page. Right, right. And that's okay, and it's okay to have those filled with cliches. Maybe in that moment, if you know you're using a cliche and 
you don't want to like ruin the flow, just quickly highlight it so you know to go back to it. Yes, that's good. That's really good. I do that sometimes. Like, oh, I want to work on this, but I don't want to stall. So I don't want to slow down. Right I don't want now. to slow yeah. down. Because when you got the flow going, you got to get the you gotta flow. You got to go out. with the flow, to use a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, there we go. we go. You wonder how many subtle cliches we've used in this podcast. Probably already. a lot. Hopefully, somebody will email flag. us and let us know. Somebody will flag us. Yeah. There you go. There's right. another one. So I, I just think we write down the first thing that pops into our mind. I get that. But then we have to go back and do the hard work. And you know? you're not always going to be able to identify them. So really get comfortable asking for feedback. And that's what we've been doing in Road Trippers. And every person who has been so gracious and allowed us to look over their work and share it with the group, I think every person has used a cliche. And it's just something that you don't see until somebody points it out. And so, And it doesn't mean your writing is bad. It just means what can you do to take this piece from good to great or okay to great good to great is that another cliche it, it, it didn't used to be but, <laughs> but it now is it now. is <laughs> now, yeah exactly that book by by that business guy I forget his name jim jim collins i think collins, it was yeah, yeah yeah good to great yeah so now that is a cliche that's another great example yeah, right so yeah get the feedback and don't be afraid of it i mean we talk about this all the time is that Feedback is so elemental to see if you're even connecting with your reader, but also just to help you improve your writing. And if you care about language, then you want to improve your writing. And the only way to do that is to get feedback. Yeah, feedback is so basic to to laying down great sentences or publishing great sentences because once it's published, it's published. Uh, so uh, feedback is so basic. And I do think we all have to develop over time a little bit thicker skin because yeah. not everything we write is golden. Nope, it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and and just because you're getting critique doesn't mean that you're bad, that your writing is bad overall. We just have to look at it as incremental, I think. Right. right. Yeah. That this one cliche is bad right. and we need to fix that. It doesn't mean your entire writing for the last 40 years is bad right. or whatever right. it is. Right, absolutely. So. All right, so let's give just a, a couple of quick tips for how you even start writing in a fresh way. So you flag a cliche. What do you do next? So um, let, let's just talk about the cliche I used at the beginning of this episode, which is pivot, right? We've gone back to that several times. But so when you see a cliche like that, you go, oh, man, I gotta, I've got to think about this. You have to slow down enough to say, so what do I mean by pivot so what's actually going on in that cliche so and so I might say for example um, so I slow down to describe what's actually happening so in this instance with the word pivot I might say hmm I am derailing or jumping off the rails of my current train of thought and jumping to a new topic oh yeah so that's descriptive but I can already see how you might Come up with a fresh image or metaphor for pivot. Like I was, it was like jumping tracks. I jumped the rails. I jumped the rails. Is that a cliche? It could be a cliche, but it's probably fresher than pivot. Fresher, or you may say I switched. I switched tracks, which yeah. which is more descriptive. Like you, as a train switches to right, a different right, track, right, right, or right. Um, I hopped a different train. Right. A thought. Right. right. Uh, I got off the blue line and got onto the red line. That's right. And you could just say that, hey, I'm off now the red line. I'm now on the green line. Right. And that would that would 
describe pivoting in a fresh way? This actually is a good moment because sometimes when you're editing yourself, you want to take something that's longer and make it shorter and tighten it. But in this instance with a cliche, sometimes you might need to lengthen what you said. So I just turned pivot into I'm jumping off the rails of my current train of thought and jumping to a new topic. Now, I might not write that whole thing, but that's a descriptive element. So I'll have to shorten that. But there might be times when, you, when you're working on a cliche that you need to describe what's going on. And to describe something in a fresh way might add a sentence or two. And that's okay. Right. And it actually may help with cadence. Maybe you need a long sentence. Absolutely. We always talk about short sentences, but sometimes you need a long sentence. Yep. So that's a great example, Dave. I think, I think that's really helpful. So start with what you're trying to describe with the cliche and then see if you can come up with something fresh from that. Absolutely. And make it as clear and simple as possible to break it down. Yep. I love that. I yeah. love that. Well, I hope that this has been helpful for people. It's been helpful for me just to think through steps for identifying cliches in my own writing. I don't always... I'm not always that disciplined, but I, I think I will engage some of these applications. How about you? Absolutely. I'm just thinking about this book project idea that I have, and I, I need to make progress on. And worried now as I think about the chunk that I've already written, <laughs> there's some stretches in there where I, I, mean, I know I'm resorting to cliches. And I go, got it. And I have to go back. And do the hard work of slowing down and making some changes. So you can yeah. see why it takes authors so long to write a book. You know, I was reading about Elizabeth Bishop, and she is a, a poet, a, a modern poet, and she said that she always had three poems going on at the same time. She was always working on three poems, and she hoped that one of them got legs enough to go into the world. But can you imagine? She that means that she's not just writing a a poem a day and putting it out into the world. These things take time. And when you care about language, it's going to take time. It is. And I want to just challenge those of you who are considering writing a book or you're in the middle of a book. There is a sense of urgency. I, I, I totally get that, especially if you're a, a business leader and you have a book that you need to get out into the world to help you with your practice, your coaching practice, your consulting practice, your psychological practice, whatever it is. I totally get that. There is always that sense of urgency. But really commit to making sure what you put out into the world really adds something to the world. Yeah, I love that. That's a great note to end on. All right, Dave, let's share our words of the episode. Right. I will go first. Okay. This is one that popped up in my, I think, my email inbox. Maybe it was a word of the day, and I had never heard it before or used it before so I thought that I would use it here so that it would be stuck in my my verbal word bank and it is lymphatic and it means in the metaphoric sense lacking physical or mental energy sluggish and I think I connected with this word because that's how I'm feeling this week is very lymphatic it's funny how three-day <laughs> weekends make they're supposed to energize you but I always come back feeling especially tired and run down and behind and you know it just it, it saps you in many ways so lymphatic is my word of the week how about yours That's Dave? Good. well mine's re not related but it's it's a it's kind of a negative word it's decrepit oh yeah that's a good word to it, say it sounds kind of like it 
Is yeah. it a onomatopoeia? Maybe it has lots of harsh. It has has strong consonants, right? Yeah. Crep- it's um yeah. Crepit. Yeah. But it it really has to do with it's referring to a elderly, infirmed, older person. Uh, worn out or ruined because of age or neglect. So you could have a decrepit 40-year-old or a decrepit 20-year-old, <laughs> I, I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know. Or a decrepit house, right? Or a decrepit house. Yeah, you can move it yeah. into the inanimate. Yeah, yeah, a decrepit house. Yeah, that's a great word. I love that. I don't know if I've ever used that in my writing so before. So lymphatic. And decrepit. And decrepit. Great words. Oh we'll gosh. post those to our, our Facebook page for sure. All right, so those two words close out our episode. Dave, do you want to tell us about our quiz that we have available for people to take? So on our website at journey66.com, we have a quiz. It's our book writing quiz. It helps you identify where you are in the book writing journey or even in the writing journey, right? Wherever you are, whether you're thinking about a book, whether you're in the middle or you're stuck. And so you take this short quiz. It takes about three minutes and you get some results. And just jump on the website and look at the navigational bar at the top where it says take our quiz. Click on the link and take the quiz. We think you'll, uh, you'll think we'll, I think it will really encourage you and actually bump you along a little bit in the whole book writing journey. We hope that it's helpful. And if it is, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. We also have a Road Trippers uh, closed group on Facebook. And if you'd like to join that where you get to see our words of the episode and receive all sorts of different kind of content, be sure to jump on Facebook, search for the word Road Trippers, and you'll see our group. It's a closed group. Ask to join, and we'd be glad to let you in. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I think that's a wrap, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.